Let's open our Bibles to Romans 8. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, Ron Chandler would love to pick those up. And uh, we are grateful that you're here with us and that you would share those prayer concerns. We welcome those visiting with us, that God would bless you in this time of worship. Romans 8, you've heard me say many times on many occasions that if you read the Bible for very long, you come to the unmistakable divide in the human family. And in the Bible, humanity is divided into two groups, two groups of people, and what separates these two groups are not family roots, nor uh, the separating line from one's gender, or age, or education, or economic status, or race, or any other human category. The great division comes in whether a person is forgiven by God or not. Whether this person's in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of this world, whether they're saved or unsaved, whether they have saving faith or they're living in unbelief, whether they're redeemed or unredeemed. All of these are biblical terms that describe this line of separation. So which would you be in if you had to answer today? Uh, no creating a third category or more. There, are, there, there, there isn't a third category. Amen. So I was thinking of other expressions in the Bible on this separation between the unbelieving world and the believing world. Um, I thought of the Apostle John. Listen to these words from 1 John 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That means when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, your life changes and you begin to follow in obedience. And that is the assurance that we have that he is with us as we walk by grace. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Wow, that is quite, quite an, an offensive statement, John. This gospel, this apostle of love, he, he speaks of it in this way, the children of God and children of the devil. I, I probably wouldn't recommend that as the front edge of an evangelistic strategy. But let's read the Bible and let it speak. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he says, oh, let me break that down for you. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's what that looks like. So in Romans 8, we've been following the, the Apostle Paul through this mountain range that we're calling Romans 8. And we, uh, he makes a distinction between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. To walk in the flesh, in this context, he is speaking about the unbelieving world. They walk according to the agenda of this world, according to what pleases them. And so in our last study, we identified life in the flesh. And in verse 5, we see that it begins with our thinking. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. One's thinking. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on this. That means the world's agenda, what makes uh, one happy, and certainly we all share that in common. We long to be happy. The Christian message is that happiness is ultimately experienced in, in knowing God's grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. But how does that work out in daily life? There are so many things vying for our attention. Saying you need to conform to this, this is the way everybody does it. This is, this is how you should follow that. Let me just give you one example. Uh, I was arrested by this in World Magazine this week uh, in a section called Marital Recession. And he, it went on to say, the fewer couples are heading to the altar amid cohabitation trends and dating divide. 25% of young Americans, 18 to 34, who are, who, are, uh, who are married, according to the U.S. Census, 25% are married, 18 to 34. The number marks uh, the decline in a bedrock social institution. In 1978, it was 59%. 126 million, that's the number of unmarried adults in the U.S. 17 million unmarried Americans cohabitate. They live together. Unmarried. That's up from 6 million 20 years ago. Everybody's doing it. You know, save yourself a lot of hassle. Just move in, see if it works out. And if it does, maybe you might move into marriage. But So how does the follower of Jesus Christ process numbers like that? I would suggest that we process numbers like that in this way. I, I can't do that. As a follower of Jesus Christ, God's got a call on my life. I'm called to honor marriage. I'm called to keep myself sexually pure in a world that has no boundaries at all. Um... I can't, I can't do that. The, the, the word of God is clear on this issue. That's clearly a sinful thing to do. Hebrews 13.4, we're to honor marriage. It's to be held in honor among all people. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. I don't want to be under that, um, that judgment. So that's how I would respond. How would you respond? Every youth in this room is going to have to make that decision. It's a massive moral slide. So that begins with our thinking. How, uh, am I going to live according to the flesh and what the world says is right? Or am I going to say, no, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And to the best of my ability, I'm surrendered to him. And I will be under the authority of his word as long as I draw breath in this world. If it's not that, it's another issue. Namely, how are you going to respond? How are you going to live? And it begins with right thinking. It also includes living according to the flesh, one's spiritual condition. Verse 6, for to set your mind on the flesh is what? Death. Well, it seems to be so inviting on one front, just like the tree in the garden. It seems so inviting, but the end thereof is death. Spiritual death, ultimately ending in eternal death. I remember riding on a train, a sleeper train, and one of the most, <laughs> if I had video, you would really enjoy this because I, it was in this sleeper cabin on the train, which aren't luxury suites. 
And I was on this train in Northeast China with my partner in ministry, Timothy Peng, and we shared it with two senior adult women. 12-hour train ride through the night. And they were in their late 70s, so I had the top bunk, which was made for a 5-foot-10 man. <laughs> and we woke up in the morning, and of course, Timothy, his native tongue is Chinese, and he engaged these two women and started in Genesis and went through to the book of Revelation. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing bits and piece of, pieces of his presentation that I understand, and you know, he's sharing the gospel, and at the end of it, one of, them, one of the women said, would you like a strawberry? <laughs> and it just showed the spiritual vacuum. It would be funny if it weren't so tragic. It's describing what it means to be spiritually dead in this world, to have no impulse whatsoever to say this is the greatest news I've ever heard in my life I need Christ one's disposition verse 7 for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God enmity hatred it doesn't matter how religious you are if you continue to do things your way in the face of the supreme sovereign of the universe that's rebellion and treason James wrote in his letter, do, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, James 4, verse 4. And then in verse 8, one's efforts to please God, all of these are indicators of life in the flesh. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Oh, no, not me. I go to church. You can't please God by attending a church service. I read the Bible. That either. Those, those have their place in the Christian life, but they're not going to earn you favor with God. My friend, you need Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, His resurrection as your soul's foundation to any kind of relationship with God. That sounds pretty narrow. You got it right. It's, it's as narrow as Jesus Christ defined it. So our efforts can't please God. Our personal ethics, our personal understanding of what we think is right. That's why Jesus' words are so shocking in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 7, he says, One on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Judas was participa participating in all of that. And then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The devil has found none to do his service better than those who were supposed to be ministers of Christ wrote Charles Spurgeon. So, we come to verses 9 through 11 this morning. And um, some commentators have brought out this really is a picture of the Christian's past and present and future. In verse 9, um, it describes life being controlled by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit. Paul describes this in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So a Christian is someone who's been delivered out of one realm and into another realm. 
out of a realm of sin and death and in, into uh, the realm of God's sovereign control of life and peace that we know a glimpse of now. But one day we will know in totality. This is a work of God and salvation is of the Lord. And then verse 10 seems to speak about the present uh, uh, in the Christian life. Alive to the things of God, his word becomes sweeter than honey and the honeycomb, more valuable than gold. It is the light we live by because it reveals the mind of God and the wonders of his salvation. And then a future glimpse in verse 11 that I'm really looking forward to unpacking in a few minutes. And that is our future resurrection. It's like Paul references in this groaning creation, we have a future resurrection hope that is a living hope. So notice with me first, the spirit of God dwells in you, verse nine. The spirit of God dwells in you, Christian. It's quite a sobering thing when he says, if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Regardless of your religious track record, regardless of how good you may think that you are, if you don't have the spirit of God dwelling in you, there's no such thing as a Christian without the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. That's verse nine. That's an important verse to put in your memory bank when you think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of the believer. If he's not in you and dwelling within you, then you don't belong to Christ. Verse nine speaks to the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It, it is not merely a matter of different pursuits or conduct. The Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That is a precious assurance to the true believer. Now, the word dwell here in verse 9 takes us back to Jesus' final teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, in the upper room. Jesus' final teaching with the disciples in the upper room. Jesus promised that he would not leave them as orphans, that another would come, one just like him, who would come to be with them and to dwell in them. And here we see another exchange of the Trinity, the Father sending the Son, the, the Father and the Son sending the Spirit, the Spirit dwelling within us. If you have the Holy Spirit within you, that is Christ's presence in you. And so he said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will, I will send another and he will come and make, we will make our home in the believer. We will dwell there. That, that word is an interesting word, oikos. It means house. And it, the verb form means to come and dwell and remain. It's not a, a short visit. It's to take up residence. It's not a pop in and out kind of visitation. It's a taking up residence. It is to be at home for Christ to settle down and be at home in your heart. Is he at home in your heart? Amen. Are you in fellowship with him? When I think of the indwelling Christ through the Holy Spirit within the believer, oh, what a precious promise that is. I pray that we would savor that here in this body. That to be in Christ means the Spirit of God is within us, dwelling there. Three C's come to mind. First, closeness. Someone who dwells in your house, you see them a lot. You should. It speaks of a closeness. Home life means you spend time together. Oh, Christian, think of your relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Do you spend time with Him? 
Do you talk with him? Do you commune with him? Do you search his word to be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path? Uh, the second C would be com companionship, fellowship together. And the third would be change. He becomes the motivation by which we do everything we do in this world. He brings change. He brings guidance. He brings conviction. He brings power to our life to live for Christ. And your relationship with Christ, if you're not spending time with Him, that's a concern. John Piper's words were helpful to me this week. The implication is nearness and familiarity and influence. If someone makes your house their home, they will be near you a lot. They will become familiar with you and you with them, and they will have an influence on you and the way you live. Know this about yourself, Christian. The Spirit of God dwells, makes His home in you. If you are not becoming very familiar with Him and communing with Him and being influenced by Him, something is profoundly wrong. Don't ignore Him or grieve Him or resist Him. So the New Testament speaks of this powerful gift of the Spirit. I need to look at a couple of, I'll try to keep it to two, cross-references to make this point from the, the writings of Paul. Look with me at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Present Bibles, ready, go. Our Bible, our Bible drillers are hearing something similar to that these days. But in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, after Paul has gone into great detail on the riches of God's grace which was upon his heart from the foundation of the world. Look at how he closes in verses 13 and 14. Think of your conversion. And if you're not in a saving relationship with Christ, may this be an evangelistic tract to you this morning to think about it. So in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, and what was that? Well, that's the gospel of your salvation. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. You, you, in order to be a Christian, you need to hear that. That's why Russ's announcement this morning, this, his challenge this morning in bringing to our, our, our attention the lostness in this world and the unreached people groups in this world. For the Christian, we're burdened about that. We want all the world to hear the gospel, not because we think it's a good idea, but because our Savior has given, given us marching orders to be faithful to the gospel in that way. So, you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. You were convicted of your sins. You repented of your sins. You, you believe the message of who Jesus Christ is and was. And you said to him, Lord, come to me and save me. You believed in him. And you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's Romans 8 9 in another way. The Spirit of Christ dwelling within you. If, he, if the Spirit of Christ doesn't dwell within you, you don't belong to Him. That word sealed is a rich word. Believer whom God confirms by the gift of the Holy Spirit, it, it's an earnest, it's a down payment coupled with the guarantee. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee? The down payment. The down payment of greater things yet to come. Think of your Christian life in the moments of joy, the moments of 
just the reality that I have a destiny in him and my, my hope is in him and one day I will be in his presence. And the thrill that comes when we worship him in spirit and in truth. And we see that how mesmerizing the things of this world can be on the horizontal level and we're lifted up to see what really is. And the thrills, the thrill in worship that we have and the tears that we sometimes shed of joy, that's a foretaste of greater things yet to come. Sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the, we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, back to Romans 8, 9. So the difference between the believer in Jesus Christ and those in the flesh is that we are people and dwelt by the Spirit of God. Amen. Notice with me, secondly, the Spirit brings life to you, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The spirit of God brings life to you. If Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit of God, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. There's an awakening that happens. To be a Christian means you're awakened. From what? Well, from being dead in your trespasses and sins. James Boyce captures this well. The first thing we have, uh, the first thing we have come alive to is God himself. To be a Christian, you come alive to God. That's not the same as religion. That's not the same as religious duty. Before we were born again, we have, we may have believed in God. Indeed, the Bible says that only a fool doesn't believe in God. But God was not real to us. He was a concept. He, he, we had no true sense of who he was or what he was like. When we prayed, if we did pray, God seemed far away and unresponsive. However, when we were born again, this changed. Now, although there is still much we don't know about God and although his ways are still often strange and puzzling to us, we do not feel that God is unreal. On the contrary, he is more real to us even than life itself. We know that God loves us and is watching over us. We trust his wise management of our earthly affairs. God is particularly close in sickness and sorrow. We know that in the hour of our death, we will pass from this world into his presence awaiting a resurrection hope. Awaken to God. Not only awakened to God, but also opening our heart to the Word. <laughs> Do you remember your BC days? Some of you are adults and you, you were, became a Christian as an adult. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, even those who were saved in their teen years. And you, you remember your BC days, your thoughts and views of the Bible before Christ. Would you give it a rousing review? I remember very well receiving one Christmas from my grandparents a study Bible. And I can remember opening it and rolling my eyes and saying, terrific. 
How about some cash? (laughs) That's a shameful thing. I remember taking that Bible and flipping it in my closet with the other clutter. It was for somebody else. It was for somebody else, not me. It could could be a lucky charm put on the nightstand or even on the closet floor, but when I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, it was treasure to me. I wanted to understand it all. And not only was it for me, it's for every soul on this planet. For many people, the Bible is nothing more than an ancient book for someone else. I, I had the joy last semester of teaching historical books of the Old Testament. That's Joshua to Esther at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas. It was a great experience, tremendous experience. And someone was asking me about it, and uh, they, they weren't a believer, they're not a believer, and so they were asking me about, you know, what, what are you teaching up there? I said, the historical books of the Old Testament. And the response was, why would that be important to anybody? Well, that's a fair question, because I believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for correction and rebuke that the man of God would be fully, fully equipped. So Joshua to Esther is the word of God and I need to know it and understand it and apply it to my life. Erwin Lutzer tells of a beautiful house standing opposite Mont Blanc on the border between France and Switzerland. And what puzzled him was that the shutters on this beautiful house um, that faced this beautiful mountain were always closed. You would think if you were the owner, you'd have those windows open. No matter how remarkable the Bible is, it will, it will not have an appeal to those who refuse to give it an honest hearing. At the end of the day, whether you believe it or not depends on whether you're willing to fling the shutters open and see what it really says. By the way, our motivation around here We want people in the Bible. We want them reading the Bible. We want them seeking God in the Word of God. Above all things, the Bible is a secret treasure. And so when we come to know Christ, it's an awakening to the things of God. And not only that, in addition to personally being awakened to God and His Word, thirdly, would be bonding with other believers. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you love what He loves. And one thing is clear is that he loves his church. And so when you come to know the Lord, you need a church family. When you read pictures of body life in the New Testament, you get the feeling they, they, they gathered because they couldn't make it without one another. We should, have, we should seek to recover that kind of mindset. We are much too influenced by our culture that's individualistic and wants to live life in isolation. God calls us to come together and be the body, to receive from one another what can't be received through a live stream or a religious programming or a sermon by Dr. So-and-so. We need to be connected in the body 
and that is life to us. Notice with, us, with me thirdly in verse 11. The Spirit brings an eternal hope of resurrection. It's like Paul just in this flow of argument brings this uh, mention of a future resurrection for the believer as a distinguishing hope against those who walk in the flesh. Look at verse 11. If, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul speaks about this future, future resurrection. What, what does this mean for the believer? The believer in Jesus Christ in this world, when we breathe our last, our soul, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. As precious as that is, our hope doesn't stop there. We have a resurrection hope. That means we will have resurrected bodies Amen. that are consistent with the bodies we have now, but are new. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the second cross-reference. And I just, uh, since Paul brought it up, I, I just thought, let's go to another writing where Paul talks about this future resurrection. In chapter 15, we'll pick up in verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through 58. So he presents here a glaring uh, impossibility. We cannot enter the kingdom of God with flesh and blood. Since the fall, sin has entered the human experience, and every human being has died. And we try every remedy under the sun to avoid the casket, but it's not happening. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So if you're under the delusion that somehow you're going to escape under a wire somehow, that you're going to enter into a freezer and they'll freeze your body and then bring it back to live... Dismiss it out of hand. You're not, you're not dealing with reality. And sure enough, there may come a time where in the course of events, you're going to be confronted with death of a friend, of a loved one, of a spouse. And you're reminded how fragile life is. And that you never know what is going to change your life. And that is the blessing of knowing Christ. But, he, but here Paul presents a glaring impossibility in verse 50. Flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of God. You can't get there like this. You can't get there. Believer or unbeliever share that in common. We're not entering the kingdom of God, flesh and blood. We're entering the kingdom of God and have by faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom is here now and we know it and experience it by faith. But one day our faith will be made what? Sight. We will see him as he is. So being born again, which changes everything for you and me as believers in Christ. We're, new, we're a new creature. We're, we have a new citizenship. We have a new destiny. He mentions a mystery in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Behold means listen up, pay attention. This mystery is something that was hidden, but now is revealed. We shall not all sleep. Uh, that's, uh, but we shall all be changed. Just sleep means die. And Paul speaks of this in 1 Thessalonians that there will be a generation alive when the Lord comes. Not everyone will die. But those who do die 
we have a, a hope. Look at verse 52. In a moment, in, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. That's resurrection hope. And we shall be changed. That word changed in a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, is the word atomos, which we get atom, and it means the smallest conceivable quantity of time. Not metamorphosis, but an instantaneous resurrection hope. And this twinkling of an eye, the only time used here in the New Testament, literally means to hurl and was used to, to refer to any rapid movement, the blinking of an eye. In a moment, God will make it right. Think of God's creative power. That in creation, He said, let there be light. And there was light. And things came into being on that last day. In the blinking of an eye, this will come about, this resurrection hope. The perishable will put on imperishable. Now, it's a defined victory, he says in this passage. Um, when the perishable, that's this, this body now, when, it, when this perishable uh, puts, puts on the imperishable, the resurrection body, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And here, Paul is quoting Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13. And this sting of death is the power of sin and the law. So since the days of Adam and Eve, we've been weeping at tombstones. And there's no favorites. No one gets a pass on death. No warnings to soften the blow. In season and out of season, season death comes. And it's a hateful, hateful enemy. There's nothing beautiful about it. I've done a lot of funerals now. And I've seen some of the choicest saints suffer greatly. And I've seen some die in their sleep at night. Wouldn't that be a great way to go? But death was not the way it was supposed to be. Sin came. A deliberate disregard and disobedience to God's commands and with sin came death. And so the human race has been trying every conceivable strategy and device to be kept from the grave. One British pastor in talking with um, an unbelieving young man, he, he expressed his bewilderment and hopelessness. He said, I lie awake worrying what it, it will be like to be dead. I lie awake worrying how dark will the coffin be. He won't know. I lie awake and feel how cold my life will be. It makes no sense, the end of life being death. Just a memory and then nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just nothing. Death is like a black hole without any sides. Death is like a thought without a thinker. Death is fear. And to die without the Lord is, is utter hopelessness. That's the urgency of the gospel. One day, sin and death won't always have their way with us. Thanks be to God, he says in verse 57, for our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a hope for the believer, a future resurrection hope. I, I love the scene with Martin Luther. Martin Luther and Katie had six children and he would catechize them on Sunday afternoon. So they'd go to church and hear him preach and then he'd go home and preach. 
to them. And he would ask questions and he would teach them answers to doctrinal truths. And um, his third child, Magdalena, contracted a terminal illness and there was not much you could do in the 1500s. And he was there at her side as she was dying a teen, uh, in her early teens. I think she was 13. And as she reached death's door, she said, Oh, Papa, I'm not afraid because of Jesus. Is that not what we want to teach our children? Is that not what we want as a church to celebrate? Is that not the confidence that God would want us to have? So here in this argument contrasting the, those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit, Paul just inserts this future hope of resurrection. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells within you. Amen and amen. Are you walking according to the flesh and without hope and in God in this world without God or are you walking in the spirit with full confidence that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior Amen. I pray so if not why don't you run from from the one to the other and know the life that we celebrate today let's bow together in prayer as we close this service it really is a, a time to respond in faith We've talked a lot this morning about the gospel, what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. It's the message of the ages. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The issue is, have you received him? Do you know him? Is your heart crying out to him? Why don't you cry out to the Lord right now and receive him by faith and walk with him and come join us as we seek to live for him? Maybe the Lord has put on your heart other needs and this message is what you needed to deal with grief and sorrow. Maybe you're wondering, who should I follow? Oh, I pray. I would point you to him, to Christ. Father, lead us now in these closing moments as we seek to obey you. Thank you for this clear word from Romans 8. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. If there are needs on your heart, you respond as the Lord is leading.